Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Talking Talky podcast. Um, I'm Sam Drew and tonight we've got uh, Ben Curry. Good evening. And a special guest. Um, we've had some fairly good goalkeepers over the years. Um, I started going to watch Talky in 2004 and this man stands out for me as the best in that time. Um, Bobby Lesnick, thank you for joining us. Absolute pleasure to be here. How, uh, how are you keeping, mate? Yeah, very good. Very good. Just keeping busy. Enjoying yeah. retirement. Not gonna I was going to say, how's, uh, how is re- retirement uh, from football treating you? Um, very different to what I expected it to be like. Um, very, very different. Football doesn't really prepare you for life in that sense. But yeah, I'm enjoying it. It's new challenges, new things to kind of look forward to every day. So yeah, it's good. What was it? I always, you see some players and you think, I'm not sure how prepared you are for life outside of football, but one thing I remember from uh, your time at Playmore is, are you the most intelligent man to have played professional football? Because <laughs> I think, because I, when I mentioned to my dad that we were very doing low podcast, bar. <laughs> uh, there's, there's no, Joe Oslid deserves more respect. Um, <laughs> but when I said to my dad, I said, we're doing the podcast, he said, what language do you want to do it in? Because he speaks more languages than... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Many, many days. So yeah, because it was it some biology degree you held or something? I was doing physics. I was doing a physics degree at the time. Um, yeah, there was there were quite a few players. To be fair, I think Matt. Uh, there were quite a few players. that I think were doing something. Sort of listening back to you know some of the or thinking back to some of the conversations I had with you know at the time. I think it was kind of not something that was talked about at the time. But yeah, it was. I don't know. It was just. Uh, you know, as footballers, we have so much time. So it's just mm. something to do. And I was encouraged by my in-laws at the time to to do something different. So I kind of just chose something that, that was interesting. No, nice. Mm. So going back right to the very beginning, was it always football for you? Or was it uh, one of many choices you had? Um, Ever since I can remember, um, it's always been football. When I was six, my dad made me sort of join a football team in, in, in Vienna to just to do a trial. And because he used to play himself and he made me go as a striker because that's kind of the, the obvious thing. And he kind of watched one of the training sessions. He went, yeah, you're better off in goal. <laughs> and then ever since then, it was just goalkeeping. No real thought behind it. It was just football, football, football. Who were your heroes growing up? Oh, um, to be honest with you, I didn't. I did, I, it was only really the Austrian players that I remember. At the time, it was um, there was a goalkeeper for Rapid Vienna called Michael Konzel, uh, played for the Austrian national side, and then um, Otto Konrad. He actually ended up being my under twenty ones coach for Austria, and those were the two kind of players, only because they were the ones that everybody had heard of, not really heard about anyone else. That was when I was really young, and then kind of once you get interested in in football, you then start to sort of broaden your horizons a little bit. And must admit, it was Peter Schmeichel. That was probably the only ever person I ever looked up to. And I thought, wow, what a goalkeeper. Yeah, you're only one year older than me. So we'd be watching football at the same time. And Peter Schmeichel was the best goalkeeper in the world for about five years straight, wasn't he? He, he yeah. almost changed the rules of goalkeeping pretty much. Yeah, absolutely. I remember watching him when Rapid Vienna went at Champions League. Um, and I remember he made a save. It wasn't... I think they were winning 3-0 at the time anyway, so it wasn't really a, a big save, but from a technical aspect, that's something that just stayed with me ever since then. So you you came over to Villa's you set up in, I think, I don't know, is it 2003? So you would have been, what, 16? Yep, so it's how exactly do, 20 years this year. Gosh, how does that come about to go, you know, to go to a massive club in another country at that age? Very funny story, actually, because and, and I tell this story to for most people now, they won't, they don't believe me what's actually happened. And sort of thinking back what I did at the time, I don't think I'd do it again. Um, when I was sort of being picked for the under 16s and, and so, um, under 15s and so on in the in the national side and, and sort of the local sides, um, agents obviously will naturally come and watch you play. And then as I was getting older, um, more and more agents started getting in touch and there was this one particular agent he was kind of he was the most trustworthy at the time which thinking back he wasn't but he was kind of the most trustworthy he was you know all talk and everything and 
yeah, he kept saying all these names. He kept saying Blackburn Rovers. He kept saying Aston Villa. He kept saying just loads of different names and nothing ever came from it. So he never really followed through with anything. He was just, I was too busy or he was with other players or anything like that. And my dad at the time kind of said, just ring them. Just pick up the phone and call Aston Villa. And in my mind, you know, Aston Villa is as big of a club as, as Rapid Vienna at the time. You don't really think about this grand scale of, of football clubs in the UK as, you know, because all I've ever known is, all I've ever known was Rapid Vienna and Austria Vienna. They were small clubs, you know, 10, 12,000 fans every week. And my dad just said, just pick up the phone. So I just picked up the phone and called Aston Villa. I don't even know who, what number I dialed, where I found the number. I just dialed in and and this guy, um, I can't remember his name though, but he was the youth recruitment uh, guy. And he kind of just said, yeah, just come over. <laughs> and that was it. And then kind of just signed a contract. I did have a few people from Aston Villa come and watch me, but it was just, yeah, one of those random things. My dad just said, just pick up the phone. And, and yeah, and then that's how it came about. Your dad would do well in mindstream recruitment. Um, yeah. <laughs> just pick up the phone and see where it gets you. Just um, pick up the phone, yeah. It was just the weirdest kind of thing. Normally, it's like three agents and everything. My dad just said, just pick up the phone. If it's true, just pick up the phone. Because we were kind of getting fed up with with what the agents were saying and doing. And there were sort of multiple agents involved and no one was really doing anything. So we just kind of said, right, we need to kind of do something about it. And did, when you came over, did you come over by yourself? Or did your family come with you? No, I came over by myself. Um I think my dad came over with me to sign a contract and have a look at the club. And then um, it was just 20th of July, 2003, landed at Birmingham Airport on my own, grabbed my bags and that was it. And even though you didn't get near the first team, really, it must have been an invaluable experience for you. It must be absolutely amazing to play at such a big club like that. I was very lucky that I was at one of those clubs that hadn't developed a new training ground where it was all in-house where first team, youth team, you know, everything down to under, well, when I signed under 16s, it was all in-house uh, resis. And I, because Eric Steele was the goalkeeping coach at the time, there wasn't kind of, you know, an under 18s and under 19s and under 20s goalkeeping coach. Everyone just trained together. First team usually just used to come in 25 minutes, half an hour before they were called over. And then we stayed with Eric um, throughout the whole training session until we were called to the under 16s and so on. And that was just you didn't get you don't even get that in in Austria at the time it was we were completely separate and yeah it was just training with the likes of Thomas Sorensen you know Peter Renkelman all internationals yeah it was just something I I didn't understand it at the time I didn't understand the scale of it just because I was growing up in Austria and it was just such a small mindset in Austria that you don't really fully understand what's going on and yeah it was it was just the yeah, incredible training with those guys every day and Eric Steele, obviously. Any, did you have um, much, oh, sorry, did no, you have much conversation with um, Martin O'Neill at all? Um, who was, I think, I think he was. Yeah, he was the manager when David O'Leary left, and it wasn't my best season. And I think I've really kind of, and it, this is probably Aston Villa's probably my biggest regret in terms of just understanding the opportunity that I've missed. I just. Everything up until this point, everything up until the age of 18, 19 was easy for me. Football was easy. I was always the best goalkeeper. I was always the one I have got, you know, I've got loads of best goalkeeper under the 12s, under 13s, under 14s and all of this. And 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 then when I came to, to the UK, my first season was, was really, really good. And I just thought this will just continue. I can do whatever I want and this will just continue. And then as you kind of get older, because I was starting to uh, be more involved with the reserves, I was traveling with the first team a little bit. I was on the bench for half a season with 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 the first team um, when both goalkeepers, Stuart, uh, Stuart Taylor and Thomas Sorensen got injured. So, it, but, but to me, everything just came easy. And when it wasn't, I didn't really know what to do. I had no idea what I needed to do in order to get myself back to those levels because all of a sudden the balls were quicker, the players were cleverer, the players were better. And it was just a big shock and I, it just took me too long to recover. And it was just, as I said, probably the biggest regret that I've got in my whole career was not actually taking the opportunity at Aston Villa. Because at one point, um, when both got, both goalkeepers got injured within the space of a week and I was on a Thursday, I was actually playing on a Saturday. So as it stood on that day, if that game was that day, I would have played in the Premier League. But they ended up getting an emergency loan in Gabor from um, Crystal Palace. And obviously he was playing and I was on the bench for the rest of the season. And it was just, yeah, I just I just didn't yeah, understand really the the, the grand scheme and, and where it could have taken me potentially. And he wears pyjama bottoms. Ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I used to wear bottoms when I was younger. I used to enjoy that. <laughs> Have you got any um, any stories from meeting any of the sort of big hitters at Villa at the time? Not necessarily. We were kind of, um, in that sense, separated because we used to get changed somewhere else and then obviously they they, they train at different stories. But one story was um, Lee Hendry. It's got a bit of a reputation for drinking. And um, and I just remember the entrance to Bodymore Heath. We were with the reserves and it was about four of us. I mean, there, there wasn't much there wasn't much going on. It was just me, uh, Jamie Ward, and then yeah, two or three more young, sort of youngish players. And he was suspended. And I remember we were training at nine and at 8.59, he pulled up with his Range Rover, drove right across the youth team pitches and just stopped the car jumped out fully clothed and then just joined into the warm up straight away it was that that was just that was just him in a nutshell at the time basically he still stunk of you know from the night before because it was like a saturday morning or whatever because he was just doing an hour long session and that was it and i just that's something that i remember from the yeah to this day he just literally dro- drove across all the tire tracks are still there and he just jumped out and just joined, joined the back of the queue basically Gosh, you didn't try to do him that talk even <laughs> no <laughs> We had I, some I fun should, at that car park, to be fair. In I, should have put, I should have put two and two together that you would have been at uh, Villa at the same time as Jamie Ward because he he mm-hmm. came to Torquay and he was, we only had him for about six months and there was a bit of a dodgy sale, like we let him go for peanuts and the lot, like right before the window closed. But he was he was outstanding and he was another yeah. one that you, you saw at Torquay and thought, we've just got to enjoy it while it lasts. Yeah. Um, but anyway, you go to Falkirk and you play quite a few games for... Falkirk how did how did that move come about uh the glamour of football um I was sitting in my in, in at, at my digs and I just get a phone call from my agent and he just says um you've got a trial in Scotland that's basically it it says just go up there go for a week um just present yourself do as best as you can and then come back and we'll, we'll kind of go from there and that was it I just drove up uh Casper Casper Schmeichel's actually up there which was kind of a bit of a surreal thing because obviously his dad I idolized his dad and then having trained with him yeah it was incredible it was incredible to see him just for the one day gave me enough of an insight into why he has become the goalkeeper that he has the work ethic the 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 attitude just the confidence just the things that he was doing just for the one session that I saw him was just something else I mean I turned up at 20 past nine. He was ready to train at 20 past nine. There was nobody else training. It was just him. And he got the kids out and says, come on. Yeah, a couple of younger guys and just come on, just fire balls at me. That was him for an hour before we'd even started training. Bear in mind, this was a Friday. It was, yeah, it was just something incredible to see. And as I said, that's why he's had the career that he's had. But yes, I mean, Scotland, as I said, that's just how it came about. Major just phoned me and says, look, pack your bags. Um, you've just signed the contract. Um, this is your deal go up and, and and do your best. It's the Premier League. It's a great opportunity. And yeah, just just do what you can. Just, there's no glamour. There's unfortunately no glamour. No, it's quite reassuring that it's, you know, even at, even if I say reassuring, it's interesting that even at that top level, you know, leaving a Premier League club, that it is so, it's true how fast, fast paced the nature of transfers are. Um, so obviously you spend, you know, a good, good few years in Scotland. What What was the standard like there? The standard is quite interesting because there are some players that can definitely like um what's his name uh Craig Bryson went to Derby so he's had a good mm. career there, there are quite a few John Ruddy played up there so there are quite a few players who ended up having a half decent career in, in in England um I think Stephen Fletcher was at Hibs I think so th- yeah there are quite a few players who who actually ended up playing and having a decent career but then there were some players who you just think how are you playing football like they were gen they're genuine it's it's just a mixed bag of, of of players and some will just disappear into the depths of the Scottish football system. Um, some will just retire, whereas some will go on and have, you know, incredible careers in the Premier League. So yeah, Scotland's a really weird one. Um, the, the one big draw with Scotland was always, um, and that's what my agent said at the time, you get exposure to big stadia, which is obviously the, the you know, Celtic and Rangers and so on, and potentially a chance of playing at Hamden and things like that. And obviously, then there's the the other carrot that you can potentially play in Europe because if they both qualify for the Champions League, then the trickles down kind of who goes into Europe and so on. And I was kind of lucky that I ended up experiencing that playing in Europe before Kirk with um in the in the Europa League qualifiers, I think, or kind of UEFA Cup qualifiers, I think they were called at the time. Um, so just experiences like that, that these are kind of things that I tend to look back at my career and kind of say, well, 
that's that's one of the things that I got to experience, which a lot of players didn't. Were you expecting Falkirk to be a stepping stone to a bigger club? No disrespect to Torquay, but we're probably not a stepping stone upwards. Um, that was my very first interview. That was a big learning curve at the time because I got asked, and you know, what's your expectations for from Falkirk? And I kind of any normal player would try and say that I'm trying to do my best and see where it takes me kind of thing. And they took it out of context and kind of said, oh, it's a, it's a stepping stone for me. And yeah, so, I mean, I think it's, it doesn't need to be said and most players will do that. They'll go somewhere to hope to have a good career or good, good year or whatever to then potentially move on. Um, for me, it was, again, it was a massive learning curve because I wasn't aware of the, the whole football system in, in the UK. I didn't have any, I'm not going to say the word advisors, but it was it was just difficult to kind of maneuver the whole thing. There was it was such a big learning curve, and if if I was to do things, you know, if I was to go back in time, I'd obviously do things differently. And with the experience that I've got now, but it was just yeah, at the time it was kind of just I took each day as it came because it was just everything was new, everything was different, and I just didn't really know where I wanted my career to go. It was just a case of do as best as you can play in the big games and then see what happens. And that's kind of where my agent, and I'm really grateful to my agent who um, has helped me with my career because I was with him for over 10 years. And the, the the decisions that he's made, the thought processes that he had, the kind of the contacts that he had really helped me in my career. So fast forwarding, summer of 2011, um, obviously Torquay, we, we've just lost the playoff final. Um, Paul Buckles left, half the first team have left including goalkeeper Scott Bevan. Um, Martin Ling comes in. Uh, I was at the friendly against Tiverton. First of all, how does it come about? Second, please tell me you didn't have to drive all the way down. <laughs> no, it was um, it was more glamorous this time, a little bit more glamorous. It was, um, my agent rang me and said, Torquay are interested. Were you, you out, sorry, were you out of contract at Falkirk or were you? Yeah, so was I was your... just training with them. Um, they because I'd been there for so long I just said look can I just carry on training with you guys and they said yeah absolutely fine um, train with them because they didn't have a goalkeeper they wanted me to stay but I always said to myself having had the four years up there I always said to myself I want to return to, to the football league I want to get back and because I was in my mind it was always a case of you've got so much of a better opportunity to to kind of have a better career playing in England because my mindset at the time was if the scouts can't find a player in, in England they're not going to look in Scotland in Scotland, the only place to go is to another better, bigger Scottish club, which was, you know, the Celtic Rangers or potentially Aberdeen, or you go abroad. To me, Scotland, there wasn't really anywhere else to go. Whereas in England, once you're playing in England, you always, the chances of playing against a bigger club, is, is just, they were just so much uh, greater. And I always said this to myself, I was like, I want to go back to England and I want to give another shot. So when Torquay came about, which again, as glamorous as the first one, my agent just rang me and says, look, go down to Torquay. Um, I had a partner at the time who had a really good job in Glasgow. And for me, it was just a case of just flying down, um, doing my medical and flying back up to pack my stuff and then actually do drive back down. Did you know much about Torquay um, at all? No, must admit, not really. Um, did a bit of research and I, I knew it was Helen Chamberlain from Soccer AM. I think that's the only time I'd ever heard of Torquay. Um, I knew where it was on a map. That's kind of, yeah, I knew that bit, but just... As I said, football is not that exciting where players kind of just look at a map and go, oh, I want to go there, I want to go there. It was at that point, it was mainly just, I knew I wanted to get into the Football League and that's what my agent, because he knew somebody who worked with Martin Ling or something like that. That's kind of the the, the story that I've been told. But I never, I never used to ask. I just, he just created something out of nothing. That was what it was for me. And I just went and did it. We always say to any talkie player, you know, talkies, you are said of nowhere. So, did you move down to the area? Did your your partner move down as well happily? I mean, um, where uh, did you, your living arrangements? Yeah, we. Um, so I did initially for the first, uh, I think it was six months. I was down more or less by myself. She was lucky that um, her work allowed her to work from home some of the days. So on home games, she'd fly down on a Thursday evening, stay with me Friday to Monday and then go back up to to, to Scotland. Um, so that was that was what it was at the time. But yeah, do you know what? Torquay was a really, really strange one because I remember sitting, I think there was like a subway at the time in Torquay on like a corner. I remember watching the sunset, it was boiling. And I remember sitting there and it, I, I didn't know why that came about, but I actually thought to myself, 
fuck have I just done? It, I, I don't know how to describe it. I don't know how to explain it. It had nothing to do with Torquay. It was just purely, this is such a weird thing that I just left everything and I just went somewhere else. And I just remember sitting there thinking, what's just happened? What have I just done? I'm in a completely different place. I'm miles away from comfort because in Scotland was comfortable. Um, and it was just, yeah, I just remember sitting there and it was this, I'm not going to say it was this fear, but it was just this f- weird feeling of just sitting there and thinking, what have I just done? I remember staying in this little lodge before I found my place and with with Brian Saar and I can't remember who else was there. I think Damon Lathrop, I think, stayed at the same place at the time we were just driving into training and it was just this there was no thinking it was just fly down or drive down whatever it was at the time and just get on with it pre-season start to just get on with it well you're probably not the first talkie player to ask what the fuck am i doing here so you know and you, and you won't be the last either so <laughs> no, i enjoyed the weather don't get me wrong i enjoyed the weather us as the fans be. ask that every week at the moment <laughs> no it was um, yeah what, what were your first impressions of martin lee um, didn't really, I, I, I didn't know him. I, I had no idea who he was, but the one thing that's kind of stayed with me maybe from day one was he was one of the very few managers that I worked with who actually listened. He was very good at listening to the dressing room and what was going on then and, and kind of managing that side of it. That was something that was sort of obviously looking back now, I've worked with, with many managers and it was just one of those things that he just knew how to manage the dressing room in that sense. He, he yeah, it was just, I don't know how to describe it, but he just kind of knew what to say and what to do and, and what the players would want because he wanted it himself. Maybe, I don't know, as, as a player. And it was just, it just, it was just something that clicked. And that was one of the, the very fast impressions that, that I had of him. We had a very settled team that year and so it must have been a very good dressing room to be a part of. It was, probably the best dressing room I've ever been a part of because it was everyone just pulled together it was just such a weird sensation because everyone pulled together because when I played in Scotland everyone people just drove off to 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 Edinburgh Glasgow wherever they lived people just lived in in different places so it was there was no togetherness everyone was kind of everyone was so desperately trying to get out of Scotland that nobody really played for the team Everyone just kind of did their own thing, and 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 hopefully I get discovered and 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 I can disappear from 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 Falkirk and, and play somewhere else. Whereas that wasn't the case in Torquay. Despite having a few players who lived in London, despite having a few players who lived somewhere else, there were so many good characters in that dressing room, and there were the amount of times we would go out after a game. It was I've never had that. I've never had that before in a in a, in a team, and that kind of showed on the pitch because we. We were harsh with each other, but we kind of did the right one all to do the right thing. Everyone was in it for the same reason. And that was kind of really strange. I remember people slotting into positions that they weren't comfortable with. Um, I remember having a big kind of big bust uh bust up in a dressing room after I think it was South End. We lost four one at South End and kind of, you know, things got flipped, tables got flipped. And it what this wasn't something that like a oh, I'm saying something because I want to be seen by the manager for me to be doing it. I was genuinely pissed off that we weren't winning or we weren't doing what we were supposed to be doing. And and it was the moment, that moment, players then came out in the warm down and says, do you know what? I think that's going to turn our season. And it did end up turning our season. That was kind of one of those moments. And and I don't know what it was about the dressing room at the time, but everyone just pulled together, regardless of what the players, you know, whether they were playing or weren't playing, everyone kind of just pulled together. And, and yeah, it was just... It, it was, as I said, probably the best dressing room I've been in in my whole career. Uh, one person in that dressing room I'd like to talk about is Martin Rice, who obviously <laughs> didn't play at all because you played every single game. But it must be really important to have a number two who supports you and is there for you and, and helps you out in, in that manner. He must be great to be uh, having a dressing room. He did play one game. He played Cheltenham in the Johnson's Paint Trophy. Played the one game. I was fuming because I wanted a perfect season. <laughs> Martin told me that on the way up, he says, you're not playing today. And I was fuming because I was like, I know I'm going to play the whole season. I know I'm going to play every single game. And he was like, no, you're not. He's playing. I was like, please play me. He was like, no, you're not playing. Rice, was incredible. Rice was just, just, it was weird. It was like the whole coaching team, including him, were just it, it was like my own personal trainers that just wanted me to do well. Um, Kenny Vasey, the goalkeeper coach at the time, I've never worked with anyone who who understood me and who was receptive to feedback 
to what I was saying to him. I was saying to him how how I think about the game. So came Saturday, I didn't want to have a session on Monday where I'm thinking about the game and thinking about things that went wrong. I just want to be peppered with shots, get a sweat on, go home. And he would do exactly that. We He would restructure the sessions based on certain things, certain teams that were, were happening. And it was just, yeah, it was just incredible. And Ricey played a big part in that because he was the same. He was, if I caught 10, he wanted to catch 10, but he would encourage me and I would encourage him. And he just created this incredible dynamic that we had at the at the training ground. Remember even the new, because I think we had a new training uh, training pitch built the other side of the car park, I think, something like that. I remember we were crawling through bushes and he was like with the ball back, you know, with him trying to get through them. And we were setting up the goals and we're trying to think like find perfect areas. But he was there every step of the way. He wasn't just like, oh, you do whatever, I'm just going home. And it was just, yeah, the season that I've had is, 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 you know, people look at the clean sheet records and so on, but the amount of credit that has to go to Kenny Vasey and, and Martin Rice is, yeah. I wouldn't have had the season because I wouldn't have had anybody to push me as hard as he did. I, I want to ask you about situation at Arsenal where Aaron Ramsdale last season had a brilliant season. He was, mm. he was you know, got a lot of plaudits. And then Arteta's brought in another goalkeeper who was a one number one at Brentford. Yeah. If that happened at Torquay or any club you were at, how would you have reacted to that as as a number one goalkeeper? Would you have seen that as a threat or would you have just even made your shoulders even broader and you've just gone with it? Um, my approach to anything like that has always been mind your own business. Um, that's always been my thing. I've had the story, at, I've had the situation at, in, in, in Scotland where um, Tim Krull came in a day before the season started. He literally signed on a Thursday. Manager told me on a Friday, "I'm not, I'm not playing." First game away. Um, it, it. I just said, "Okay, cool." That, that was that. That's all in that situation as a goalkeeper. That's all he can do. It's a little bit different, I think, for outfield players. But I've, I've been in in dressing with some good characters and some really bad, you know, sort of second or other goalkeepers. Um, you know, I've had that in Scotland again. There was a different goalkeeper that came in. I'm not going to name the name now, but. He was a complete dick, basically. Um, wouldn't talk to you, regardless of who played, wouldn't talk to you until Thursday. And it was just, but my, my concept was always worry about yourself. Make sure that you're ready because it's all well and good, you know, getting, getting a hump on and, and getting pissed off that you're not playing. But then imagine you are playing and you've not been doing your training right. Then you're going to look, you know, even worse because the manager's going to go, well, you've not been training, you've not been playing and now you're not ready to play. So, regardless of who came in my, my approach would always be the same wish him all the best and if i get a chance i'll i'll play and i'll do my best to to, to kind of train and and uh, in in training every single day that was always my thing that's that's always been how i've how i've been from from kind of day one so during that season underling we went on an incredible run uh where we just we couldn't concede you know we and and i've never really seen a goalkeeper and a defense kind of win as, as many games as strikers had um what what was that defense like and and was anyone anyone particular from that back four a real standout for you to play behind um I, with with stuff like that it's it's really difficult to to, to single out players there were always going to be players who will get the plaudits and you know they get a move and so on but I, it's really really difficult and i think that showed in the um in the team of the year at the time the pfa team of the year there were so so many players in that in that team and if you've got you know players who can score a last minute goal kev nicholson you know can't remember how many one nils we had i think we had like 13 one nils or something like that that season it was just you know, when you know you've got somebody who's going to score a goal, then you're going to do your best in at the back to make sure that you know you preserve that. And yeah, it's it's really difficult to, to kind of pinpoint somebody. I, I know Sazi had a really really good season. I know Mark Ellis, obviously. I know Joe went in at right back. Then Lee Mansell played at right back. Then Kev was left back, and it was just one of those weird things that I think that season I could have played up front and I would have scored a goal because it was just that kind of a team that we've had. There was that much of a team spirit. Everyone kind of worked for each other. And yeah, honestly, somebody else could have played in goal and they, they wouldn't have conceded. It was just that good of a dressing room. There was just that good of a, a spirit in the team that it's really, really difficult to to, to kind of pinpoint somebody because everyone had their strength and everyone, and we knew that and everyone just played to their strengths. I wasn't passing the ball to certain players because 
I knew they could handle it, but that wasn't the point of the season at the time. It was just to make sure can we, we'll do our best to win the game, and we did. And and that's kind of yeah, that that's kind of how I see that season. So as much as we, you know, I've had the clean sheet record in that sense, we've all had it as a, as a team. As mentioned, we look we won a lot of games narrowly by one goal, um, and under the cosh a fair bit in the last ten minutes. A lot of those matches. Do you prefer that pressure, or, or would you rather play in a four 0 win where you barely touch a ball for ninety minutes? Hmm. Um. The, yeah, I, I think I agree. I think our fitness levels weren't the best. I think that's kind of something you know. I look back about our fitness levels weren't the best at the time, but it was. I don't. I, I don't know because I, at the time I didn't mind the one nils because you come off and one save looks so much bigger in a one nil win than at four nil. It just that's just the nature of goalkeeping. And I think then you stand out because people are more likely to talk about that. So from a selfish standpoint, yes, I'd rather have the one nils. Um but obviously you don't want to go into every game one nil because you never it eventually that luck, if you want to call it, is going to run out. Eventually something's going to happen where you're going to concede. And then and I think that season was very much it wasn't a house of it wasn't a house of cards, but it kind of felt a little bit like that. That if something doesn't go for us, who knows where we're gonna where we're gonna go? Because it, the whole season, everyone kind of talked about how much, you know, we almost played beyond our expectations, and 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 I think towards the end of the season, we got a little bit tired, and I think we allowed ourselves to believe that we might actually do something here. Um, I remember sitting in sounds fancy, but we we're in this like blow up jacuzzi, recovering from one of the the, the long travels, and we were having this conversation in the jacuzzi and I remember just there was this, this belief that we could potentially go on and, and, and win and get promoted. But it it was, it was I, at the time, I didn't think there was the right way to look at it. It was just a case of just win the next game, just do the, what we needed, do what we needed. And then for example, crew, I think at home, that was one of the, the really, really defining moments. And I think that's kind of where something just started to creep in and just at the wrong time, um, so yeah, that's yeah. Ideally, if if we'd won four nil most games, we probably would have got promoted quite comfortably. But eventually, our luck was going to run out. But from a selfish standpoint, yeah, one nil always. I always prefer the one nils. Yeah, it's pretty much one of my favourite seasons as a Torquay fan. I'm going back twenty five years. It was just a brilliant season for highlights. I could probably name ten or so, but I'd rather you name your highlights. They're probably ones that really stand out for you in your mind. So my very first highlight was for Torquay and that's not directly related to the to the football but is it Tim Herbert the um Torquay he, he does he does the local paper I think Tim uh yeah he was media man yeah that was at, it that, that was time. it yeah um, he interviews me the day I sign and he says so what's it like being you know back in England closer to your wife and three kids <laughs> I don't have any kids <laughs> That's so talky. Somebody had changed my Wikipedia. And that's where he got his information from. So somebody had changed my Wikipedia. And and it was just, I don't know where it came about, but I could see the changes on the Wikipedia site. And somebody had changed my Wikipedia that I had a wife and three kids in Oxford. I think it was one of our friends like taking a piss basically but I just remember that interview very first thing and he says so what's it like being back here and I said hold on I don't have wife and kids unless you know something I don't and kind of that was it was such it was I, I don't know that was just kind of the set us off and and yeah it was such a such a great moment but from a from a football standpoint it was just again it was a lot of the highlights from from the season were the little one nil wins, the things that you just don't expect. And I know Danny Stevens scoring against Barnett one nil away. Um, they missed a penalty. I think I gave it away. Um, it hit the post, hit my hand, bounced out. Then the player came onto it and I think I missed or something like that. And then somehow we sneaked a one nil win and drove home. I remember Kev Nicholson. I think he turned up on the right wing for some reason. I think he got lost and then the left foot into the top corner in the 90th minute. It was all those kind of goals that, that he scored. Or oh, that that we scored as a team. I remember just just little things where Kenny Vasey, again, that was the way he was as a, as a goalkeeping coach. Where he used to we used to play um, two touch before on a, every Friday before every away trip, and the loser has to buy a lemon drizzle cake and a, and a latte for everyone else. And it was just the amount of points I racked up at Costa was incredible. But it was just one of those things that we were doing every, and it was just moments like this because we kind of we knew we were the underdogs, and it was just. 
you know, we look at other teams like Plymouth with their stadium and their dressing room and other, you know, bigger clubs that, that, that were in the league at the time. We had a little porter cabin, but everyone just kind of pulled together. Everyone just just, just worked for one another. And it was the, the things like the nights out that we had as a team. And it was the team spirit. And it was the conversations that we had on the bus. And it was just the enthusiasm that we had. It was, you know, Ricey doing things that I probably shouldn't say, um, you know, publicly on, on the bus on the way home. But he was there to kind of, you know, pick up the team after a loss or anything like that. It was it was all those moments that that throughout this season, they're the kind of the ones that that stay with me more than more than kind of necessarily just specific things on the football pitch. Can we just get your view of Ewan O'Kane's second goal against Plymouth Argyle when he lobs a Laria from about 35 yards? Yeah. Uh, those were the days. I, I remember I can't remember who I was talking to about this, but saying this Plymouth now in a championship, you know, in a, in a half decent side, whereas at the time the players that they had as well. So Connor Hurrahan, he would played for them in midfield and stuff. And it was just, they was just all over the place at the time as well. It was it Boxing Day, wasn't it? I think we beat them 4 0. I think it was 3 or 4 0 or 3 1 or 4 1 uh, or something like that. It was round about then because they always I used think, to schedule those games around then. I think it was November we played them at home and we won was 3 1. And then, but we played them new or 2nd of January away. That was it. And that was the 2 0 or 2. I think that was 2 1. Yeah. yeah. But they were yeah, just in terrible front of, at in the front time. Of like 17,000 people down there. Yeah. Unbelievable. But the... I mean, you Union's goal was good because I mean, from a from a technical aspect, yes, aspect, yes. But I hate seeing goalkeepers concede crap goals. Like I hate it. I don't <laughs> ever celebrate when when a goalkeeper when when one goes through his hands or you know it's a mistake or whatever. I never used to celebrate. If it's a good goal, I'm like yeah, the first one to to to, to try and run up and down. But if it's a bad goal, then I'm just like oh no, I can't watch it because that could happen to me. And yeah, I'd, I'd never want that to happen to me. So is that the famous goalkeepers union? Yeah, that's just how that's that was just my approach. Even when 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 our keeper, say if I wasn't playing our keeper, conceded a bad goal, I would never kind of be like, yes, that was a bad goal. I was just like that could turn around and and that could be me. So I was just never, I was just never try, like trying to celebrate. I'd celebrate for the team, but not you know on a personal level. I know what it's like. So one of my well, I say one of my sort of all time hero is is Lee Mansell. Um, mm. What was he like as a captain to play under? Very um, enthusiastic, uh, very enthusiastic. He he was always just, I don't know, he, he'd get us moving. He was always the guy that get us moving. He was always there. He, you know, he'd have banter on the pitch. He'd say things to people, just we're under the cosh or whatever. And he just cracks a joke and you're just thinking what? But it, I don't know. It was just a way to kind of relieve the pressure maybe and so on. But he was just, yeah. It, we had a lot of those characters, I think, in the dressing room. That was that was one of those things where, because of the dressing room that we had, there were a lot of players who would speak up and say something. And it wasn't just like, oh, please, captain, do something so we can kind of, you know, hide behind you. It wasn't that kind of a dressing room. And I think, but but I also believe that Lee led a lot of that because he would be the first one to say something. And if he said it, other people would feel comfortable speaking up and it kind of just, you know, rallied everyone in, the, in the, kind of in the same direction. And who did you room in- with? Sorry, go on, man. No, after you. So who did you room with on uh, away days that season? I think it was Ricey. I think it was Ricey, but I also think that... I think it was in a room with Union a couple of times. I think it was weird, but I think generally it was Ricey because I think it started off with um, people kind of getting to know each other and you kind of just go into different rooms. But I think as we kind of carried on in the season, it was generally... Yeah, it would have been Ricey, I think, at the time. God, Martin Rice and Union O'Kane, that must be two completely different people to share, yeah. share a room with. <laughs> yeah, very calm, nothing. And then, yeah. And then Rice. But, but, but what about Union? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting you mentioned the crew game because, uh, and Sam agrees with me, it, it's one of our worst five moments, probably, as, as Torquay fans. I mean, at a final whistle, you could hear a pin drop. Yeah. I just felt after you saved the penalty in the last five minutes, I just thought we were going to go on and win it 1-0. But it, it just seemed that last-minute equaliser sucked all life out of the season completely. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how, how you felt about it, but it just felt season over in that moment. Yeah, I think we... Kind of looking back at teams that do really well throughout the playoffs, it's always a team that comes in late because they'll go, go on a run and, and kind of they do really, really well. And I think for us, it was always this... First, second, third, and then fourth, then maybe in the top three, then back out of the top three. And that really takes its toll mentally because you kind of think you're there. And even though, you know, somebody who's 10th throughout the whole season finishing fourth feels so much better. For us, it was always like, we want to get automatic. We want to get automatic. We want to get automatic. And it never, it never quite happened. And I think you're right that. 
that game because again we were one nil up, the penalty at the end, and I think it's in Nick Powell that scores the um the equaliser for them, and it was just. I think that's kind of where the whole we didn't have a plan B kind of thing came in where it was just all or nothing. And if it, this doesn't work, we don't really know what to do. We weren't going to step back and kind of change formation or take players out. We, we were just doing what we were doing. And if this didn't work, we didn't really have anything else to, to kind of fall back on. So it was just kind of pick ourselves back up and, you know, go through the playoffs and so on and and hopefully, but then Cheltenham again, the, the away games at Cheltenham was just, it was a completely different game. It was a completely different side that we were at I think we were just so we were more disappointed about not making it into the top three than than kind of hoping that we're gonna we're gonna get promoted yeah it was it was difficult at the time yeah yeah I, I it's funny I remember going to that away game at Cheltenham just thinking I, I've always been quite an optimist optimistic fan but it did feel like we'd kind of almost run our course and and even Cheltenham because they were never really in the question of going up automatically they yeah. even you could just see there that bit more momentum and I remember when because crew were crew were like bottom two or something at, at Christmas I think yeah. changed the manager and just went on this all you know ridiculous run and you know they're Ashley Westwood and Nick Powell in their teams we both you know Westwood played quite a lot of Premier League football and Nick Powell got the move to Man United so you know they they, they went up deservedly but that that was a real kind of sucker punch yeah. It was an awful moment for us. Obviously, so we finished the season and yourself, Mark Ellis, uh, Kev Nicholson and, and Mansell get P- PFA Team of the Year, which which was just brilliant to see because it was, I agree with Ben, it, we, you know, I've seen us go up a couple of times. We've had some great years, but for me, that will always be the standout year. I don't know if it was because of an age I was at or, or what, but it was there was just something really, even where I, I moved to the other end now, but where you stand on the pop side, was where you'd all run to go to the dressing room and even watching you come out of that bit sort of felt a bit different. Um, but as is always the case with any team that has a good season, bigger clubs will come knocking. Now, Peterborough came in for you and it says undisclosed on Wikipedia, I've got in my head that they paid about 300, 300 grand for you. <laughs> how did How did that move come about and were were you kind of expecting, you know, obviously you knew you had a good season. Were you expecting a move to come? Um, yes and no. Uh, I didn't, the, the early indication was that I signed a new contract in January. That was the early indication at the time. Um, I, I, you know, both uh, myself, Lee and Kev, I think all got new contracts. I, I maybe knew them as well at the time, I think, but there were quite a few. So obviously they knew that there must be some kind of interest because you don't do that, you know, just willy nilly, you kind of, especially, you know, the way the season, the way we were going and so on. But to be honest with you about the move, I knew about some interest kind of last couple of weeks of the season. Um, but that usually happens. Um, my agent kind of sometimes rings me and he says, look, do you want to know or do you not want to know? Because some players don't want to know. And and I kind of just said, I don't want to know, but I knew that there was something somewhere. Um, and then I kind of knew who was coming to watch. I don't know how I found out, but I knew who'd, who'd be watching. I knew he'd be in the stands watching. And But but I think it's just the nature of football. I think that's just very normal for players to you know to, to, to be watched. Some players know about it, some players don't. But But if you've got a good season, you kind of have to expect that a little bit. Um, yeah, it was it was an interesting time because I've never been in a situation like that. Normally, it was just a you know as, as glamorous as I said earlier, just pick up the phone and and you're going there next, and that's it. Whereas this time around, it was a little bit more. There was a little bit more um, involvement from me because my agent was kind of then saying, "Look, do you want to go there? Is this something that you're interested in 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 doing, or you know what do you want to do?" And I I, I kind of trusted his advice at the time. Um, obviously, it was Championship football, so that mm. was kind of the carrot at the time. Um, and, and playing and, and and so on but then he was also saying to me look Torquay is a bit of a dodgy club and things that they do won't always be in your favour and they're not the kind of club to, to to kind of you need to make sure you do well and then, and do well and then move on rather than kind of 
you know, stayed there for, for, for long term. Because even on the on the train up when I was signing for Peterborough, um, they put in a bid for another goalkeeper just to make sure that I signed the contract, even though I'm 10 minutes away from, you know, Peterborough train station. It was just, yeah, it was just that, that kind of a club that they were. But my agent said, look, this is an opportunity for you to again progress and, and, and move on. I was like, I think it was just at the time I had to, I had to do it. Oh, it, it could never blame you. I mean, moving, like I say, if you if you've if your career has effectively started at a Premier League club, the goal has got to be to get as close to that as possible. So to yeah. go to and it, I think Peterborough went up. That it was they'd just gone up that summer, hadn't they? Under- I think they had, that was the first season of the championship, and then Joe Lewis left the goalkeeper. Joe Lewis and Paul Jones um, both left, and they kind of left the gap for two goalkeepers to come in. Okay, so I think so they win a championship for one year. They came up the year before that. My my honest reaction really was that you were far too good for us, and that we were lucky to have you for the season we did. And it was just a, a privilege to have you. And you can't really hold players who clearly playing blow themselves back. So for me, I, you know, who, who saw every game that season, I, I just thought it was a matter of time before you got a, a good move. I'm just wondering what it feels like to be rate to know your own rating. You, you know, you're rated as 300 grand. Is that just mm. football and something you can shrug off, or does that make you feel good, or something you don't really think about because it's, it's just football? I've never really thought about that, to be honest with you. It's it, my dad was more involved in in that side of it than I was. Um, I never thought about it. It was, you know, kind of what I mentioned earlier about when another goalkeeper comes in. It was just the same you know, rinse and repeat kind of, you go to another club, you do your best. And if that's good enough for the manager, then you're playing. If it's not good enough, you're at the team. And it's as, it's as simple as that kind of, for me, I never thought, oh, there was money. There was this look ultimately. Yes. It's football and there's a fan base somewhere. And, you know, you want to, you want to kind of, and, and kind of speaking of fan base, you know, talkie fans, I think they, they, they certainly deserve a mention because, you know, to travel up at Accrington, that's something I was going to mention earlier, to travel up at Accrington away and, you know, beat them 1-0 and, you know, people there in shorts and t-shirt and it's absolutely freezing. It was just, yeah, it was incredible. It was, it was genuinely, genuinely incredible that, that year. Um, never seen anything like it. Never seen anything like it. It was just, yeah. But Tuesday night, Rotherham away at the Don Valley Stadium, I think it was at the time, sitting in the corner there, we win in 1-0 and, you know, you need binoculars to see the fans, but there are people there to watch you. And it was just, yeah, especially with the rescheduled games that we had over Christmas and so on. It was, yeah, it was, it was, it was amazing to see just the, 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 the sheer joy that the fans had to come and watch us play. So yeah, thank you for that. Now I've, I've got to mention uh, one thing because so I, I work uh, for a company in Exeter and unfortunately that does come with working with Exeter fans hmm. uh, or one, but the three of us, uh, three football fans, Exeter, Plymouth and Torquay. So it does make for good conversation. Um, what what was Exeter City like as a club to go to um, sort of towards the one, one of your latter clubs? Uh, not too dissimilar from um, Torquay, to be honest with you at the time, from the memories that I've got. Very, at the time, family-run club. Um, Tiz, the manager, was pulling a lot of kind of, you know, dinner ladies were coming in to make food for us and it was kind of everything was you know, done by the community. So it was very much, you know, there was a lot more involvement with the fans. There was a lot more involvement with with just you weren't kind of as detached as you are at some of the some of the other clubs where you're kind of you're just a player. You're more kind of just um you were part of the team, you were part of kind of Exeter. And again, that was the same as as as, as it was at Torquay when we were finishing games. I remember going up into the stand and, you know, there was food there and you interact with the fans and it was all this and kind of Exeter was, was very similar to that. No, that's interesting. It's, it, yeah, sim- similar clubs, but they are, they're kind of what I hope that we will become one day with the fan ownership model and everything. Um, just, just, last kind of one for me um what I was always not not a bad way but I was kind of almost a bit surprised because goalkeepers sort of historically always play a bit later than outfield players what you correct me if I'm wrong did you retire kind of just after the covid season and and so what what was it that kind of did you think actually I'm I'm kind of done with football now oh how much time have you got it's (laughs) This, look, football, and this is kind of something that I was touching on earlier. You play football for the love of football, absolutely. But you also play football for, because it's a job. It's just like any other job where you do something in exchange for a salary. 
And for the vast majority of my career, football has been just that. It it might sound strange, but football to me has just been just a job that I will do my best at to make sure that, you know, I get paid, you know, the right amount, wrong amount, doesn't really matter as long as I get paid fairly in that sense to the amount of effort that I, I, I do and, and, and based on my performances. And if my performances were good, I get paid more. And if my performances weren't as good, I don't get paid as much. And football to me has, has very much been that from a very young age, purely because um, when I was about 24-ish, I think it was in Scotland still, um, I actually fell out with my dad. Big, big argument over football because he used to be a goalkeeper. Then I kind of outgrew him and, you know, played more games and so on. And we had a big, big falling out because he was trying to teach me things. And not that he wasn't, he didn't know what he was doing, but it's just, we just had different points of view because there was reality of how matches are being played. And then there was kind of, you know, training ground stuff, um, how you want to be playing. And and, and we kind of had a big argument. We fell out. We never talked football since. Uh, we haven't talked football since. And even before that, there were just things about football that I just didn't enjoy that much. Um, football very much for me was do it so you can have freedom outside of football. So if I do football well, if I train well for the two hours, then I've got a lot of spare time to kind of explore other options, other opportunities, other things that just interest me. I'm a very naturally quite a curious person. I will go down some rabbit holes, staying up late at night, just Googling stuff, just watching videos and so on. Um, it, it, there's no particular topic. It's just so much. It's just such an exciting world for me. And kind of fast forwarding to to COVID and pre-COVID, I actually did my cruciate ligament. When I signed for Mansfield, didn't realize that my knee just swelled up. I, I can't remember what I did. Um, ne was never sent for a scan, but my physio did some tests and my ACL was just kind of clinging on for dear life. So he couldn't do the test. Uh, played on for 18 months, then eventually got injured. And then eight months of rehab. And it was in that time, I kind of thought, I actually enjoy this. I actually enjoy not the stress because used to, football used to cause me a lot of stress. Um, every Saturday, there was no, I was never somebody that felt confident. I was never somebody that felt confident going into a game because I'd e immediately tell myself, if you start feeling too confident, you are going to, um, it's going to like, you're going to make a mistake. You're going to think that you're going to, I'll just be, oh, whatever. I just need to turn up because that's one of the mistakes that I made when I was really young, when I was 17 um, at Aston Villa and same again, when I was a bit later, just thought this is too easy. I just, I could just turn up, you know, I don't need to be doing any of this. And I was never somebody who could just relax every single game, regardless of who it was against, regardless of shit the opposition was or how good the opposition was. The, I always put myself under pressure and then the people around me would suffer. The people, um, I was just not a nice person to be around and I'm not blaming football for my divorce, but it certainly had something to do with it because I was just a different character. I was just a different person. And when I, when I got to, when I was retired, when I was injured, sorry, I didn't, I, I enjoyed that freedom. I enjoyed that freedom of not being that person. I enjoyed that freedom of not being this horrible. Um, and I'm, and I know I could have controlled it and I know I could have, you know, looked back and, 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 and been a different person and kind of thought about things differently. But at the time, it was just, that was just me at the time. That was just how I was. And as I said, it, I just didn't enjoy that. And then when kind of COVID came, I got injured, came back playing that season, got stopped early on anyway. Um, and then my agent kind of rang me in March and he was like, have you thought about retiring? And I kind of said, yeah, I have actually. Um, and kind of one thing led to another. And it was a relatively easy decision, if I'm going to call it that. It was a relatively decision just to kind of step back from football and kind of think, Do you know what, there's so much out there. And I'm still young enough to kind of create a bit of a career for myself because I know that if COVID hadn't hit and if I hadn't been injured, I'd still be playing football. I'd be playing football until I'm 40. I'd be playing football for the next, you know, however many years, because it was just an easy thing. You just keep going, you just keep going, you just keep going. But there was interest at the time. There were a few clubs that were interested. I never wanted to play outside the Football League. Um, there was a club outside the Football League that were interested. I said to myself, I don't really want to be doing that either. And then um, they actually got reinstated into the Football League. Um, but at the time it was too late because it signed somebody else and it was just, it was just one of those. Um, it was time for me to, to, to do something else and just to kind of, you know, escape from that. Because as I said, I just, I just wanted to be as a different, a different person. I just didn't enjoy 
that pressure that was there every single weekend because that's the pressure I put myself under and, you know, rightly or wrongly, I just didn't enjoy it. I just didn't like what it did to the people around me. So, so you're not involved in football at all anymore? No, I don't watch football. I don't play football. I don't I do not do anything that's kind of related to football. I, I will, if if we're in, in a restaurant and there's a game on, yes, I'm going to kind of be glancing over. But honestly, um, at this moment in time, you could show me half the squads in the Premier League and I'd, I wouldn't be able to tell you who they are. Or you could show me some players and I'd, I'd have no idea who they are, um, even some so, of the bigger names. So there's no point in me asking me, asking me me asking you what you think of goalkeepers using their feet and playing out from the back and <laughs> passing along their six-yard line. No, I, I think it's brilliant. I think it's brilliant. Um, I think it's a great... like from, from that standpoint, I think it's great because it, it's just a new way that football needs to be played. And I think goalkeepers in general, there was just not enough emphasis being placed on goalkeepers being good with their feet. Um, what people have to understand is, or managers maybe, or, or people watching it, that there will be mistakes. There will be more mistakes and goalkeepers are going to look like dicks basically for doing that. And and it's going to look crap. And I can't remember who I had this conversation with, but it was this whole, when this whole Harry Maguire, David De Gea thing was going on. And I think... David De Gea passes the ball to Harry Maguire against Sevilla. I think I, I remember seeing this because somebody had sent it to me and it was this specific point that I wanted to emphasize at the time. It was it, Harry Maguire could do so much more with that ball, but he doesn't. He tries to pass it back or he tries to turn or whatever. The ball gets stolen and they score and David De Gea looks like a dick. But the same situation with another player who just lets it roll through his feet, turns and plays forward. Goalkeeper looks like it, like he's made a really good pass, even though it's the exact same situation in the exact same scenario. And I always say this to people, people watch and say, oh, well, he's shit with his feet and she, he's shit with his feet. And I'm like, no, no, no. You've got to understand that most defenders don't want the ball. So let alone managers will be screaming down their necks going, make sure you pass the ball, make sure the defender gets it. Defenders don't want it because they just want it as far away from them as possible. And so you've just got to expect mistakes. You just have to expect mistakes. That's just the nature of football. Yeah, there'll be more goals and yeah, you'll be creating more possession or whatever, but there will be more mistakes. It's just inevitable. It's just a numbers game. It's just percentages. You're playing more percentages in, in danger areas. Well, if teams are good or better teams, we'll just steal the ball and score. It's just as simple as that. And, and I think that shouldn't go against goalkeepers. Because unless you're Testagan, unless you're some... I don't know, some, you know, rare goalkeeper, Edison or whatever. There aren't many goalkeepers in the Premier League who haven't made mistakes. Top, top quality. You look at Lloris, people are arguing he can't play with his feet. You look at Alisson, you look at goalkeepers like that. They've all made mistakes, which are, you know, could have been avoided by just booting the ball 70 yards. But managers don't want that. So they have to expect that. That's, that's where I stand with it. I've got to be honest, it, it's, it's really refreshing how honest you are about kind of your views on footballer and what it and you know retirement and everything because you don't kind of often hear that and I've you know, we've, we've done a few podcasts with various members of that kind of Martin Ling squad all mm-hmm. all kind of vaguely different I mean you speak to Lee Mansell and you know he's very quick to mention his 13 12 or 13 goals that season you speak to Rennie Howe and, and he can't remember an awful lot apart from his own goals and yeah. all of that but I think the nice thing to hear is that it's everyone says that it was just one of the best teams that they've played in their careers. Um, have you got any, say last one for me, unless Ben's got anything. Um, no. Have you got, have you got a kind of lasting memory of, of Torquay as a club and a, and a place? It, it's not, It my memory of Torquay is the whole, just the whole community that was there. I think that was what it was. It was just because it was such a small place. People knew you, people knew who you were, but you also got to know fans a lot more. Um, you, you got a lot more personal with fans. You got a lot more kind of that kind of, you know, able to build that kind of a relationship. And that I think is something that you don't, football clubs are generally very sterile. You, you stay, you're away from all of that. You, you're generally just, you know, so, so you, you'll go and do a hospital visit every now and again at Christmas and hand out some presents. Like that's as far as it goes. And then you have to do community service, community, not service, whatever they are, the, the events where you kind of sit down and two of you get told to, to, to go somewhere. 
we, at Torquay, that was never a problem. At Torquay, that was never a problem. And I think that's kind of where the memories are with it. it it's, I remember the nights out. I remember the, the the team spirit. I remember, you know, the story of Rene Howard. I don't know if he's told you that, but he he came in one day and and with a black eye after a win and he scored three goals or whatever and, and came in with a black eye and said, oh, somebody spilled a drink on my missus or whatever. And Martin Ling just went, all right, as long as you score at the weekend. And and it was just, those are the kinds of memories that, that, that would never happen at any other club. That would never happen at any other club. And that kind of is the point that I was making earlier about Martin Ling, where he just knew what to say at the right time in the dressing room. He just knew what what every player wanted. Um, it's it's those little memories. It's it's getting back from, I can't remember, I think it was Dagenham, really late on a Tuesday night. Everyone's knackered, getting towards the end of the season. Thursday morning, we're all turning up at training and he says, right, get your trainers on. And we went for a bacon sandwich. Um, you know, things like that. But then we won at the weekend because he didn't want his training because we we're traveling again and it was all those things it was it was things like that 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 really have that that, that the kind of stuff that i've got in, in in you know in my memory from from that season it was just all those little moments there wasn't anything massive or kind of a, a real highlight it was just loads of little things like that that kind of stand out to me um in that season yeah we, we spoke to lingy and he's, he's just a great man he's a really I cannot speak highly enough of him. Um, well, look, thanks, thanks so much for coming on and joining us. It's, it's, it's been, it's been fascinating. And it's been really enjoyable. And yeah. like I said at the start, I, I've been going for I think it's my twentieth season, maybe twentieth, nineteenth, too many, too many. Ben's gone even longer, but yeah, in, in the time that I've been going, it, there's not a debate. You are head and shoulders the best goalkeeper that I've seen. No, thank you so, thank you but i think that reflects on the squad it my seasons generally have reflected on the squad um it's it's very very difficult in the position that i'm in to do a good job if the rest of them don't care and that as i said my seasons the better my seasons being the better the team that i had in front of me that they were and, and that you know as i said at talkie that's just been anybody could have played anywhere that that season we would have done a good job you know lee mansell could have played up front and he would have scored loads of goals because that's just the team that we had and that kind of reflects my season and that reflects everyone else's season as well. We'll have to edit that out. I'm not sure his ego needs that. (laughs) I swear to say thank you for the great memories. As I say, it was a very, uh, personally, it was a very entertaining season for me. It means a lot to me that season and um, you were massive in that and it's been a, a a privilege to speak to you. So thank you so much for your time. No, no, thank you. Thanks for having me. It was unexpected, but yeah, I really, really enjoyed it.